Okay, this morning we're going to consider the topic of secret sins. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus had just exposed the secret sins of the Pharisees. He told them that they were like cups that are clean on the outside, but inside they're full of robbery and wickedness. And he then warned the disciples against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He said, there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and there's nothing hidden that will not be known. He further warned them not to fear man who can only kill the body, but fear God who can both kill and then afterwards he has the authority to cast into hell. He is the one who knows the inner secret sins and he is the one who is the final judge. Bach writes that respect for God's knowledge and our accountability to him means that we will conduct our lives like an open book where we have nothing to hide. In Hebrews chapter 4, and I'll be skipping around from uh, passage to passage, but in, in he, chapter 4, verse 12 and following, further emphasizes the openness of man's inner being to the gaze of God. When we read the Word of God, we are subject, we're subjecting ourselves to its penetrating nature. It can pierce to the discerning of our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. No creature is hidden from God's sight. So in a sense, we could say, as far as God's concerned, there isn't such a thing as secret sin. Secret sin is what we do to hide from people, not Him. And a secret sin shows that we fear man, but we do not fear God. Because God sees all that's in us, we need help from the outside of ourselves to approach Him. And the writer of Hebrews tells us right after this passage that we have such help. We have Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who represents us before God. And he's able to sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way like we are, yet he's without sin. The word of God not only penetrates and exposes our inner being, it also is a preventative against sin. Psalm 119, verse 9 asks, How shall a young man keep his way pure? Then it answers, By keeping it according to your word. Verse 11 tells how the pure walk must begin in the heart. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Scripture memory is a good way to get the word into your heart. But meditation on a passage of scripture will do the job as well. D.L. Moody had a statement in the flyleaf of his, of his Bible that read, This word will keep me from sin, and sin will keep me from this word. What are some of the harms that can come from hoarding or harboring secret sins? Well, first of all, it harms the one who harbors them. First John five, uh, First John rather one verses six through nine, uh, the apostle John uh, contrasts what it means to be walking in the light with what it means to be walking in darkness. It's like as though he's saying, if we walk in the light, the light's going to expose our sins. But what's going to happen to the person that walks in the light? He's going to acknowledge his sin. He's going to confess them. 
And God is faithful and just to forgive his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. The one who walks in darkness probably doesn't even see his sin. He has a, does a good job of, 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 of denying his sins. And he, uh, he, he has cheated himself out of fellowship with God. He, he says that I have no sin and the truth is not in him. And, and he ends up deceiving himself. And a self-deceived person is in pretty bad shape. Peter talks about the uh, danger of fleshly desires. He says, abstain from fleshly desires. And he says that they war against the soul. The, the war that we're in as, as uh, Christians is enough, let alone starting to join the enemy side and, and indulge in flesh, uh, lust of the flesh. Uh, we, 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 we're hurting our own soul. In Psalm 32, David describes the misery that he went through when he failed to confess his sin. He says, when I was silent about my sin, I was miserable. I was, my, my body wasted away. I was groaning all day long. God's hand was heavy upon me. And he had lost his vitality. He then acknowledged his sin and he quit hiding it. He confessed it to the Lord and the Lord forgave him. The second harm that comes to, from harboring sin is that it creates a hardship on other people. Remember the conquest of the city of Jericho by the people under is, of Israel under Joshua's leadership. God had told them to wipe out everything, do not take anything, it's all under the ban, it's forbidden. And of course there's a man named Makan who saw some items that he really liked, he lusted for, he took, he hid under his tent, in his tent. And the next day when the Israelites went out to battle the little and to conquer the little city of Ai, they were defeated. And Joshua was on his face. God, why have you brought us here? Why this? And God said, get up. There's sin in the camp. Somebody has taken something that was under the ban. And so the next day, the next morning's investigation revealed the family of Achan, and then Achan was the guilty man. And Joshua says to him, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan confessed his coveting and his covering up of his sin. They removed the things that were hidden in the tent, and he and his family were put to death. But God was glorified. The third harm that can come from harboring sin is the ruin of one's ministry. Paul realized that the ministry he had was by God's mercy. And uh, he didn't lose heart because of this. But uh, he also says that I have renounced, therefore we renounce all the hidden things of shame. The MacArthur Study Bible says that this phrase, the hidden things of shame, refers to secret immoralities, hypocrisies, and the sins uh, deeply hidden within the darkness of one's life. 
So Paul avoided these things and renounced these things so that he would not be the reason that the gospel was not made clear to others. He wanted his pure life to commend himself to other people's consciences. And he said that if our gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those who are perishing. In their case, the blind, they're blinded by Satan from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. Paul admonished Timothy in his ministry to keep faith and a good conscience. And he says some people who have rejected a good conscience have suffered shipwreck regarding the faith. And uh, I like the statement from the MacArthur Study Bible. It says that a good conscience serves as the rudder that steers the be believer through the rocks and reefs of sin and error. Paul testifies repeatedly throughout his writings that he had always maintained a good conscience. A good conscience is important, and a hidden, hidden sin cannot have a good conscience. The passage in Romans 13 uh, comes to mind because it, it talks about ma not making provision for the lust of the flesh, and that's why it was chosen. But there's a story that goes with this passage I want to share with you. This was a passage that was instrumental in the salvation of Augustine, who, was, uh, who became the bishop of Hippo in 395 A.D. Somebody has described Augustine as maybe the greatest mind in the church since, uh, since uh, the Apostle Paul. I don't know if that is true. I, I, I know the Apostle Paul had more accurate writings than some of Augustine's uh, writings, but uh, still, he, he made some impressive contributions to Christian theology. Before his conversion, he lived an immoral life, and uh, one time before his conversion, he prayed, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. He had become, as he became more exposed to some godly influences, he came under conviction of sin. He thought he heard a child's voice say repeatedly, take up and read, take up and read. He found a volume of the scripture and he picked up and read these verses from Romans 13, verses 14 and 15. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He seems to have been a changed man from that time on. One day he met his former lover on the street and uh, she said, uh, Augustine, it is I. To which he fled and replied, It is not I. <laughs> How do you avoid making provisions for fulfilling the lust of the flesh? Well, I don't know. This is just an example. What if you're on the Internet and you come across a, a, some, something that's designed to appeal to the fleshly desires? What do you do? You look at it further, give it some little more attention, or do you flee from it, turn the other way, trash it, whatever, to get it out of the way. Well, I think you know the only safe way to avoid the uh, making provision for the lust of the flesh. James uh, spells out a deadly progression from lust 
to death in James chapter 1 verses 14 and through 16. First he says that our temptation comes from within ourselves. It's our own lust that tempt us. And if we follow the lure of our own lust, a conception will take place. It's going to give birth to sin. When sin is completed, it gives birth to death. And then James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In other words, nip the, the nip it on the bud before it becomes a, dead, a deadly progression. Think about how David could have and should have dealt with his lust when he first observed Bathsheba bathing on the roof. Rather than saying no to his lust, he entertained it went the next step, sinned. And then to cover it up, he committed murder. And he brought great trouble upon his himself and his household. There was murder within his among his sons, and his own son tried to murder him. So we uh, this this all God promised him after he did this sin with Bathsheba. Romans 6 is a chapter that should be meditated upon and applied. It's one that ministered to me as a young Christian. I remember different times when I faced temptation, and this was even before I was married, that I, I had learned to apply this verse, in, in, or this uh, passage. In this, in this chapter, Paul makes it clear that we've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And Jesus, like Jesus died for sin once, and he now lives for God. He says, we are to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. And maybe it was kind of a, a wooden way I did it, but I, when I saw the temptation, I would say, I am dead to that. I'm alive to God. And, uh, and, and I, I just knew that this is, the thing that I should do, this is the obedient thing to do. And when it says reckon yourselves or consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, this is not the power of positive thinking. It's not that you are going to make something come true by reckoning or considering it so. It's that this is true of you as a Christian. You are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. And when you reckon this or consider this, it's you're acting in line with what you are in Christ. It's not something you're making up or, or psyching yourself into. It is true that Christ, in Christ we have been made dead to sin and alive to God. And we consider it so because it is so. And Christ's death and resurrection has broken the power of sin over our lives. It's only in Christ that we can actually be free from the lust of the flesh. Lastly, if we're to be not be caught up in the dangers of secret sin, we must deal decisively with it. Romans chapter 8 verses 12 to 14 tells us that we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to its desires. If you do so, you must die. Rather, he says, we, by means of the spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh deeds of the body. If we do that, we will live. 
Dealing with sin requires decisive action, kind of like what Jesus taught when he said, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Because it's better to enter into life with one hand missing than it is to go into hell with both hands. When uh, King Saul was told to go out and kill the Amal Amalekites, you may remember that the the Amalek was uh, a tribe of people that were that uh, attacked Israel on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land, and God said, told Israel later, "You are to wipe them out." And uh, there were still Amalekites in Israel at the time Saul was king. And God had directed that he should go there and, and fight with them. And he says, he says, when you go, you kill every person and you don't take any of their stuff. Kill their sheep and everything. And uh, well, Saul obeyed to a certain degree, but he rebelled to a certain degree. He kept some of the best sheep and he kept Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And so when Samuel comes to Saul, he confronts him about this. And uh, Samuel had uh, them bring uh, the king Agag before him, and he finished the job that Saul didn't do. He took out his sword and hacked Agag to pieces. And that's the way we're to deal with sin. In fact, John MacArthur had a sermon entitled Hacking Agag to Pieces, and that's what it was about, it was about dealing decisively with sin. This is the way we must deal with sin, put it to death, not by our own strength, however, but by means of the Spirit. Paul ends this section by saying that we are all who are being led by the Spirit are children of God. That is, they are being led by the Spirit. And, and by the way, our, our lesson today is going to be on deciding the will of God. And this, this verse isn't one for... And I'm sure that Matt will say that. I, I like the way Matt teaches this. Uh, he, he teaches it right. <laughs> uh, that, that, that this passage where it says by, led by the Spirit isn't talking about decision making as far as your career and things like this. It's talking about being led by the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh and living the godly life that he's talking about in this passage. Thank you. All right, let me pray one more time. And then we'll go through my 30 or 40 pages of notes. <laughs> so before I pray, so last night I was working on my notes and I printed them. I'm like, oh, those are too small. I need to boost the font of everything so I can see it. But they were the same notes from last year that were plenty big a year ago. Um, so there was some teasing in my household last night. <laughs> so I was like, I have to reprint this. <laughs> anyway, let me pray. <laughs> Lord God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that um, it is clear to know um, what your will is, Lord, that this isn't some um, difficult thing for us to figure out, Lord, but that you um, have given us a guide in your word, Lord, and we know exactly what you want in the lives of Christians, Lord. And we get to hear about that this morning. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, help um, as we finish off this build uh, year. Lord, help us to go home and 
not forget, not let this go in the back burner, not um, walk around and say, man, build was good, and then not really realize what we've applied, Lord, but help us to um, grow in our shepherding of our own hearts and our love for you. Um, help us to um, just allow that to penetrate into our homes. Let us not skip our homes for ministry, but but really shepherd our homes, Lord, um, and then make us useful tools for your ministry, Lord. In your name, amen. All right, so I think this is the first ever build lesson I taught. I came in when Scott was leading build and taught it a few years ago um, and kind of poached it because I thought it was my favorite lesson. So when he's like, does anyone want to teach a lesson? I'm like, ooh, biblical decision-making, I'll take it. And then this year, it, it kind of worked out that it's the last one. Um, and I think that's kind of cool. Like, because I think the way that you make um, biblical decisions really is kind of a practical application of everything we've been talking about all year. Um, and so that's why you see D1 through 4 and don't know where to put it in your binder. Sorry, Ashley. Um, but it is. Like, if you're shepherding your heart well, you're going to seek the Lord rightly when you're making a decision. Um, and if you're shepherding your family well, you'll interact with them well around making decisions. And if you're putting the right emphasis on the church, you'll have counselors in your life that will help you make decisions. And if you're striving for holiness, you're going to be the kind of man that makes good decisions. Um, and so this really is an application of everything we've been talking about. This lesson contrasts some wrong thinking and biblical decision-making. Um, it's kind of split up into three sections, and so we're going to talk about what Scripture tells us about the will of God, and then we're going to give some examples that have just permeated Christian community and how we have kind of just, I think, been taught or just kind of learned to make decisions that isn't biblical. And then um, there's a section that's pretty well plagiarized from some Joel James counseling that is like a six-step approach to biblical decision-making. Um, and so that's the outline of today. Um, as you think about it, uh, you make decisions all the time. I, I googled at some point uh, how, how many decisions do we make a day, and the first result said about 35,000 conscious decisions are made each day. Um, I think of myself as a pretty good decision maker, and I'm like, well, good grief. Um, I'm sure that at least half of those are bad decisions. <laughs> 35,000 a day. Um, and so we can't go through a full process 35,000 times a day. Um, and so there is some things that we need to just know and have our life centered around. And like I said, like if you're a godly man, if you're doing these things, your life is going to show um, good decision making. Uh, however, there is some things that when you hit some of those bigger decisions, you really do need to spend some time with them. And sometimes slowness, slowness to making a decision is one of the most helpful tools. Um, so in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, it says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as an unwise man, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So verse 17, so then do not be foolish, but understand the will of the, what the will of the Lord is. We must know the Lord's will for any particular decision that lies before us. So, the question, who should I marry? Well, let's find the Lord's will in that. Um, should we send our daughter or son to college or that university? 
let's discover what the Lord's will is. Um, we've been trying to have a baby for a long time. Is it God's will that we have a kid? Um, these scenarios are important. We don't want to make a wrong decision. Um, and so we want to know what the Lord's will is. And so here's the million dollar question. Is it God's will that we find God's will in decisions before we make the decision? Um, so put another way, does God want us to know what his will is about that decision before we make the decision? Yes. So if so, he would make his will obvious to us, right? Like there would be a clear path to this is exactly how I make that decision. Otherwise, um, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like we can't just magically know his will. We have to look at something that says this is what I want you to do in that decision. Um, if he wants us to know that ahead of time, he's going to make it clear. Um, so like I said in the roadmap, let's open up scripture and see what God's word says about his will. Um, scripture kind of categorizes his will into two forms, um, prescriptive and decretive. So prescriptive is his revealed will, is what God has commanded. So do not steal. God's will is that we do not steal. Um, decretive is what he's decreed will happen. It's his unrevealed will. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll talk about both of those in a little bit more detail. But let's look at his revealed will first. Um, turn with me to Matthew seven twenty one. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The rest of scripture details what the Father's will is that we must do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Repent, believe. Uh, we know the gospel. God has not hidden or kept secret the Father's will in regard to the salvation. Um, and if we're talking about hidden versus revealed will, can you imagine if what we needed to do for salvation was hidden? Um, I have a buddy, when I used to work at Intel, my best friend at Intel, um, his name is Amr Preet, and he's Sikh. And we had a lot of gospel-centered conversations. And his description of how like he gets to heaven or gets to enlightenment um, was they try to be the best they can and hope that they capture the attention of the gods. And if they capture the attention of the gods, then they can move on to the next stage of enlightenment. And if they don't, they get a do-over and are reincarnated here on earth. And I'm like, well, what is that? Like, what do you do? And he's like, I don't know, but we just try to do the best we can. Um, and it was like, as we interacted around that, you could see it was just, he was deflated, even in his own religion. And he was devout, like, and, and he just didn't know what his God's will was for salvation. Um, it is a sweet, sweet gift that we have that we know what God's will is for salvation. Um, let's go to 1 Thessalonians 
I'm sure most of us know this one. Um, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Um, here's an example of a revelation of God's will for the believer. Um, and the New Testament gives many of these. Um, God has not hidden these commandments. Uh, giving thanks is God's will. Um, backing up to 4.3 of 1 Thessalonians. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is one of my favorite verses. Every man in this room should have this verse memorized. God's will is that we be sanctified, and to narrow it further, we must abstain or flee from sexual immorality. God has revealed precisely what his will is for us. He's revealed his mind and will to us through his commands. It's kind of a side note. Isn't it ironic that we'll spend hours seeking out God's will for how to buy a house or change jobs? But when it comes to battling sin, we don't take God's will nearly as seriously. I think it would be I think it would do us all good to spend some time thinking about how God's will for our life is holiness. This is the will of God, our sanctification. The first category of God's will for us is revealed in, in his commands. Let's look at the second one. God's broad intentions for, for believers reveal his will. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is similar to how God's commands for believers reveal his wills, but these are more general or broad principles, are stated in broader ways that may not tell you specific action to take in any given situation. But you must live by God's broader intent in his revealed will for you, a non-conformed, transformed, renewed living. The third category of God's revealed will is that God's plan for human history reveals his will. I'm going to skip the Galatians reference um, for the sake of time, and let's jump over to Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. He, had made, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on the earth. God's plan for not only human history, but even beyond that, for all of what he has made, is that everything be summed up in the person of Jesus Christ someday. This would include his return, his judgment of sinners, his millennial reign, and it goes on. So as a summary of what God's revealed will is, he has his commands, he has his broad intentions for believers, and he has his biblically revealed plan for human history. These make up his knowable will. Usually when a Christian is trying to discern God's will for his life, he doesn't have these three things in mind at all. Instead, he's wondering about a decision that needs to be made in a specific life situation that scripture does not speak to. Should I go to community college or ASU? 
Should I buy a house or condo? What is God's will for me in these ways? And this leads to the second form of God's will, his unrevealed will. I'm going to read through six Proverbs. Um, I think you have them listed on your page, so you can look them up later. Um, Do you have them listed? Yeah. Okay. I was looking and going, trying to read upside down and backwards um, in fine print, and somehow I didn't see it. Um, Proverbs 16.1, the plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. 16.3, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 19.21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And 20.24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Proverbs acknowledges that God has an unrevealed will or plan for every person. Notice these Proverbs don't specifically reveal what it is. Nor do they give an indication that it can be discovered before the decision is made. Proverbs leaves God's unrevealed will well unrevealed in the moment. It is mysterious. When you're seeking God's will for the decision before... It is usually this unrevealed, mysterious will. So here's the question that doesn't get asked enough. How does the Bible direct us to think about knowing the unrevealed will of God, especially in regards to decision-making? Does the Bible ever tell us, teach us, or guide us, or direct us on how we can know his unrevealed will in specific situations before we decide? And are we ever directed by scripture that we can and must know God's unrevealed will for a specific situation before we make the decision? Are we ever directed to find God's unrevealed will before we make a decision? Um, You'd think as popular as the phrase finding God's will is, that it would be very obvious all over scripture. And it just isn't. Believers in Jesus Christ are never directed by God through his word to find his unrevealed will before they make a decision. If you carefully read through scripture references to God's unrevealed will, you'll find the concept of finding that unrevealed will to be notably absent. Oddly, in my notes, I don't have the scripture reference here. Um... I think this is Acts. What do you have? Acts 18. No. I don't know. I accidentally deleted the reference. Um, It's talking, anyway. It's Paul desiring to go to Rome. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be rescued from those who are obedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. This was Paul's desire to see the believers. And Paul knew God had a plan for his own gospel mission. But did Paul write as if he believed that he could know God's will for Rome before it happened? No. Um, And I'm pretty sure... If you think about how Paul got to Rome, 
that if we used our current like categories for decision making, he would have been like, it's definitely not God's will for me to go to Rome. A shipwreck took me away. Like, he didn't get there the way that we would, in our current Christian thinking, this is how we know that it's God's will to go there. I got arrested and was drug in chains. God definitely wants me there. Like, that's just not, it doesn't, it, it's not compatible with how we think about finding God's will. Um, and so we need to recognize, and I think that's some of, really the whole first half of this lesson is to help us think through like our our paradigm for decision making needs to be upended from what a lot I mean I was raised I go through the next section and I'll say this over and over again like I was raised in a church that used every single one of these unbiblical methods for decision making as like prescriptive methods for decision making <laughs> like, <laughs> And so I've made some significant decisions in my life wrong, with a wrong method, because that's just, that's not how scripture reveals it. Um, and so for the sake of time, because I know you guys, I don't want you guys to miss out on discussion groups today. Uh, let's just jump into some of those wrong examples of decision making. There's six examples of man-centered attempts to find God's will. Um, and... I could use examples in my life and will where every single one of these um, were applied. And by God's grace, um, my life has played out the way it has. Um, but that doesn't mean that these are, are helpful at all. So the first one, purely pragmatic approach. The key word there is purely. I'm not saying that it is man-centered to use analytics and decisions to use pragmatic things um, but if there's no other influence allowed to impact your decision making process other than pragmatism um, then it's it's a man-centered tool because you're using a man-centered tool and I, I, as an engineer in my earlier career I love decision matrix um, I love using pragmatic things when we bought our house that we're in right now I like made a list of everything we wanted and then categorized it and then I filled out my priorities and then Jenna filled out her priorities and then every house we looked at it was like there was a number that said this is like the best house and this is the worst house because of the decision even if Jenna's like but I like that one better I'm like no the decision matrix says you like this one better <laughs> and, and by God's grace the house that we bought had everything on the list so we didn't have to fight um, and I didn't have to like like God's grace saved me from my own decision matrix. <laughs> but um, if that's how you make a decision, if you're sitting there and she's like, I don't like that house, and you say, but the decision matrix says it is, um, and you buy the house your wife doesn't like, that's a man-centered, pragmatic approach to decision making that is not biblical. Um, and graciously, God saved me from that um, in our current house. Oh, but in that, as you think about that, like, I mean, that's a straight true example. Like, I could email you the decision matrix. It's actually really helpful. Um, <laughs> but if that decision matrix becomes God, that decision matrix becomes your idol, not um, what God really wants in your life about things. And if 
there's a house in there that you buy that puts you as a slave to a, the lender in a way that's unhelpful and um, then your decision maker matrix just made you make a sinful decision. Um, and so you need other things in your life. So now we'll talk about the lucky dip approach. This is actually how I um, decided it was a biblical thing for me to start dating my wife. Man, I really shouldn't teach this lesson this way. <laughs> um, the, um, this was my approach to hermeneutics when I, I mean, I started dating Jenna at 17. So at 17, my approach to hermeneutics was open up the Bible and whatever was on that page would probably speak to my situation right now. Um, and that seems weird in this church that that's a normal thing, but that was like, people like made me leaders of student ministries at 17 because I could open up God's word and make a decision. I don't know, it was terrible. <laughs> I can also, unrecorded tell you a good church not to attend here in the valley based on that um second timothy 2 15 says be diligent to present yourself approved to god as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth and we talked about this in a devotional earlier this year um it, it's important that we approach god's word with a proper hermeneutic um, we need to go to god's word as a workman and pulling a verse out of the Bible to go make a decision. Um, and maybe the literal open your Bible up, look at that page and decide what it is, isn't what we're doing. But a lot of times we'll look at or a verse will come to mind and pulling it out of the context of how that's applied in that passage um, does the same thing. And, and so we need to be very careful that the way we handle God's word is accurate. Um, Yeah, that's... All right, let's keep going. Um, the prophecy approach. Once again, grew up in a charismatic church. I had someone... I, people prophesy to me all the time. Um, God's word says a lot about prophecy. Uh, it... There were prophecies about me that were just proven that they were some people making up things out of emotion. Um, and so that's not something I think we're going to run into in this church at the way that I grew up with it. But um, there are phrases that can seep into our consciousness and into our conversation um, that feels like prophecy. Um, God told me to do this. Um, I was praying about it and it felt right, uh, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit later, but um, there's indications of like, yeah, I think that's what God wants for you. Well, how, how are you getting there? What, what is it? What, what is getting you to that? And you could say that's what God wants for you because this is the will of God my sanctification, right? If we're talking about sanctification, that's what God wants for you. But if you're talking about a house on Hackberry Drive, that might not be what God wants for you in that situation. And so saying that, um, we need to just be careful with our speech around how we talk about what God wants, what we think we say. Um, 
I grew up around this way of thinking. So in the charismatic home that I grew up in, we believed in a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that once that happened, you had a supernatural ability to know what the Holy Spirit wanted. And so then all of a sudden your emotions become God and rule your decision making. Um, because that's the Holy Spirit in me that is ruling my decision making. That's a dangerous place to be. Um, and that's how I grew up. So, um, <laughs> so using that approach really can lead to ruin. I mean, a faith can be shipwrecked um, if you allowed your emotions to dictate things. Um, the next few examples I think are more common in this room and in this church um, and honestly I say this I think our church does a really good job of staying true to scripture of being biblical in our decision making and I think a lot of this stuff can subtly creep in and we don't even realize it's there and I think as, as I'd love for as you guys go home and think through decisions just kind of have these things in the back of your mind because you'll probably, alarms will go off. I know they've gone off for me, like, um, in the three years or four years since I taught this lesson the first time, every time I make a decision, I default to some of these, and I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> that's, not, that's not right. Um, and so the first one, or the fourth one here is the peaceful approach. Um, I just had a piece about it. This method assumes God communicates his unrevealed will through a sense of inner calm. I have peace about this decision, therefore it must be God's will. This, this just isn't taught in scripture. Um, inner peace has no bearing on whether a decision is a good one or a bad one. Um, scripture doesn't speak about inner peace. And think about um, Jesus going to the cross and in the Garden of Gethsemane um, and being in agony to the point where he sweat blood. Um, and that's what Luke twenty two forty four says. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Um, there was zero peace about that, and it was the right decision for him to go to the cross, obviously. Um, he proceeded to the cross regardless of his lack of peace. Um, and I think as we look at scripture and look at what trials look like and look at what, how we are to just approach life as a believer, um, peace isn't really attached to decisions, isn't really attached to our, our path. Um, and so that shouldn't be something that dictates whether it's the right decision or not. Um, now, I do think that God grants us a peace after we make a decision. I think that once we make a decision and it's the right path and we've gone through the right process to get there, I think there is a level of um, just comfort that comes from trusting God in those things. But it shouldn't dictate what the decision is. Do you guys see the difference? Because it's kind of subtle. Um, yeah. Question here. As far as both number three and four, in terms of being approached to decision making, it seems that both of them are uh, emotional type of decisions and we try to use prophecy or peace as a means to justify the approach that we used which was emotional yeah is that what yeah it is? okay yeah that's really good did you guys hear that 
right, the next one, which this one I think is the most common or a very, very common one, um, is the open door, closed door approach. God opened all the doors for me to get this job, so it must be his will. Or uh, the more common is, if God doesn't want me to do it, he'll close the door. Um, so what you mean by saying this is, if circumstances make it easy for me to do something, then the right decision, then the decision to do that must be the right one. If it's easy to do that, it must be the right. And if circumstances make it difficult for me to do something, then that decision must be the wrong decision, like a shipwreck or prison imprisonment. Um, which that, that's my point. Like it's just not taught that way in scripture. Um, what determines if something is an open or a closed door? Um, it might even be your state of mind about it. Um, the weary prospective missionary says, we are having so much trouble raising our support, it must not be God's will for us to go. Or maybe God's just testing their perseverance. Um, if Paul used this decision-making process, um, and he was beaten and put in stocks in Philippi, riots in Thessalonica, riots in Berea, mocked in Athens. Those are probably closed doors for ministries with this approach. Um, the church itself wouldn't be what the church itself is if Paul had used this approach to decision making. It's completely arbitrary. Um, the fact that something is easy to do doesn't mean it is good or wise to do. Was the door open for David to commit adultery? <laughs> the window was. <laughs> Does God control circumstances? Absolutely. But it is speculative to say that certain circumstances mean God wants you to make that decision. Uh-huh. This is one, so there is another kind of, which I think I'm getting ahead of myself, but one of the things that you'll hear in my home a lot is don't make a decision until you have to. Um, so a lot of times, and this, is, this isn't the open door, closed door approach, but it's pursuing something to the point where you have to make the decision. And the example I'll say is schooling for Eden. When Eden was going into kindergarten, um, there was a school, a local school that like, Every one of our friends had their kids going to the school. It was like the school to take our kids to. Um, so Jenna and I were like, well, maybe we should send, our, send Eden there, and then we can get on the wait list and move the boys over there, and maybe that's the right thing to do. So we did the tour. We did everything. After the tour, I was like, I don't really like this school. And Jenna's like, well, I do. I'm like, well, let's, like, there's a 200-person wait list to get in the school. Let's apply and make a decision when we need to make a decision. Um, and that gave us time to pray about it, and we didn't decide that day, and we sought other people's counsel on what that decision was, and we went through some of the steps that we'll get to later, and, um, and then we were on a vacation with just Jenna and I. We were in Austin. We were at the state, I can remember where I was standing, in the state capitol museum when Jenna got the phone call that Eden was number two on the wait list, or like got in. Like there were four slots open for this kindergarten, and Eden got one of the four, and um, Asher, who's Eden's age, was like 223 on the wait list. So, like, she got in. And so we had 30 minutes to decide because that's how it worked. And I, Jenna hung up the phone. 
And I turned to her and I was like, I don't want her to go to that school. And Jen's like, yeah, me neither. I'm like, cool, that was an easy decision. Um, it was a hard decision two months ago before we found out, but by the time we got there, we both were like, this is the right decision. And so that, was an, that wasn't an open door, closed door approach, but it was not making the decision until we had to. Um, and we do that a lot. Like, I pursue things that I may not want because I can always say no. Um, but I want to give myself an opportunity to um, say no when I want to say no. And so I think that's a little bit of a contrast. I'm not really sure why I bring that up here, except I think there's, there is an approach to, um, to pursuing things and making the decision when it's the right time, uh, but not allowing open and closed doors to decide what it is. Yeah, Josh. Hey, Matt. So, I mean, so far up to this point, about a summary of what we need to be understanding now is like in scripture there's going to be things that are pretty obvious um, and things that might give us some general principles to follow um, you know you can't actually find a verse that says go to this college but right. maybe there's some principles in, in that thinking um, and then now there's some things to avoid yep. uh, and so hopefully with these examples this will actually help reduce the wrong approach. <laughs> that, I think that's, that's a great summary, and I think that's helpful to think about. Um, and there is, you know, there, there's a six-step process, I think, here in a minute yeah. um, that I'm actually on track with time or with where I want to be that we can spend some time thinking about. And that six-step process isn't like, it's unbiblical if you don't use the six-step process, but they're very good principles to use to help make those right decisions. Um, and these are some really bad principles that we use <laughs> and make decisions. And it doesn't mean that every decision you make with an open door, closed door approach is going to be wrong, but you're just not taking the right uh, um, approach to those decisions. So the last one here is seeking signs. Um, which is very arbitrary. Um, Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Um, this is very man-centered. Uh, and... And I think this is, I mean, it's kind of similar to the open, closed door, closed door approach. And it's funny, it's one of those, like I have it in this second category of ones I see more. It doesn't seem like something that you would interact with. But as you start observing, you see people saying, oh, well, well I just, that, that I saw a sign that it was the right thing to do. This happened and therefore it was the right thing to do. Um, and so these approaches are very man-centered. Um, they're pretty un they're unbiblical um, every single one of these methods is centered on the decision maker and left to their own interpre internal interpretations um, and so how should we make decisions and you can see the, the subject or the, the section is titled decision making informed by scripture 
it's that way for a reason. Um, and so let's walk through these six steps. Um, so the first one, in God's strength, be obedient to God's revealed will. His commands, his broad intentions. Um, these commands are outside of you. Uh, so what am I saying here? Uh, generally speaking, being obedient to God, decision maker. First place to begin is to make sure that where God has clearly revealed his will, that we are indeed walking obediently to him. And so we talked about that some. This is where, this is the will of God, your sanctification comes in really handy. Um, God's revealed will is seen in both his commandments and his broad intentions. Don't focus on finding God's will in your decision while you're ignoring his revealed will in your life. Fight sin, shepherd your heart, be Christ-like. Uh, a Christ-like decision maker is a good decision maker. So in the triune strength of God, be obedient to God's revealed will in your life. Uh, one of the keys to this is knowing what his commands are, knowing what he wants for you, knowing what it looks like to be obedient to him. Um, open God's word memorize it, know it, learn it um, know what God's word says uh, about debt know what God's word says about parenting know what God's word says about you name it the category of the decision think about that category and know what God's word says about it pray for wisdom that's number two um, if any of you lack wisdom, pray for it, and God will grant it to you, James. Um, and so, pray for wisdom. Difficult decisions begin with prayer. We must ask God for God's wisdom from the start. Remember that you are not praying for an open door, a sign, or a word from the Lord. You are praying for wisdom. That means you need daily intake of God's wisdom in Scripture. The book of Proverbs needs to be a regular part of your Bible intake. Um, understanding and knowing wisdom literature is going to inform decisions. Uh, there's a lot of passages in Proverbs that talk about the foolish man. Well, if you're making decisions, you don't want to fall into that category when you're making those decisions. Um, sometimes we get in too big of a hurry to make a decision that we feel pressured for a quick answer. Um, and so the lucky dip approach might not take much time. Um, so sometimes the decision-making approach in praying for wisdom is slow down. Uh, and that goes back to my don't make a decision until you have to. Slow down, take your time, move. Um, yeah, move that way. And number three, gather information and counsel outside of you. Um, think about some major decisions you've made in life that you've made on an island or maybe with just your spouse and then think about the ones you made where you've shared it with your small group you've shared it with an elder that's close to you you've shared it with counselors that are in your life and you've heard them um, one that just shows some slowness in the decision making there's a lack of urgency there that is helpful um, Proverbs loves careful, thoughtful, informed decision-making. Um, so I highly encourage you to just spend time in Proverbs. Um, our small group's actually going to spend the next year or so in Proverbs. 
Um, and so I encourage it. I think it will help you when that's on your mind and on your heart on a daily basis. It's going to really help you um, in your decision-making process. And um, and when you have people in your lives, like this is kind of, which we've talked about this all year, but when you have people in your life that you can go to that know you well and can help inform a decision, um, you need to use those, which means you need to be a part of a small group. You need to be involved in people's lives. And the busyness of life, especially when you've got younger kids and you've got sports and you've got things like all of a sudden it's Sunday and you don't even know, like you just feel like you just left church yesterday. And, and you need to make time to have people in your life so they can inform your decision. Um, you don't need to go seek counsel from someone you haven't talked to in three months. That's not going to be helpful. You need to have people in your lives and have counselors. A wise man has many counselors. Um, and you need to pick counselors well. Um, make sure that they're the right kind of believers. Uh, I found this in my earlier life, and I even noticed this, like, like, my impulse is to go to a counselor who's going to affirm what I want, not tell me what I need to hear. Uh, and, and I can talk myself into almost anything. So I need someone to tell me, Matt, you're talking yourself into this. <laughs> and, and, and that's not the right decision. Um, so make sure your counselors are the right kind of believers, that they're stable, mature, knowledgeable of scripture, godly and obedient. Um, if it, and this, this is just another important part of just striving for holiness, right? Because if I'm holy, then I know I'm informing my decisions from a Christ-like approach. Well, if I'm holy also, and I'm someone else's counselor, I want to be able to inform their decisions from a Christ-like approach. And so if I'm living a life of, you know, what Ashley was talking about, hidden sin, that's going to disrupt my ability to even be a counselor and be a brother in Christ with someone else. Um, I need to fight for holiness because the guy across the table's um, decisions are at stake. Um, and I don't want to let my hidden sin or even my known sin be an impediment to anything. Um, and so if you, you need counselors, you need them to be um, holy. You need to be holy. Um, yeah. And you need to be willing to listen to them. Uh, and sometimes that's hard, right? Like you go to three or four counselors and you get three or four pieces of advice and now you've got to decide what's the right way to go. Um, sometimes that's hard. And, and you need to just spend time a little bit thinking about who are these counselors? What are like... What's their track record for godly decisions? Um, the fourth one, does the Bible speak directly to my decision? I kind of touched on this a little bit, but before making a decision, we need to determine if God's revealed will speaks directly to this. Um, so think about a few examples. Like, I think I talked about debt a few times. Like, what, is God's, um, what does God's word say about debt? And there's a really good series that we did here at the church. I think Smed taught it, if I remember right, on debt 
do you remember? It was Matt, right? I think John taught it. Scott taught it? Yeah. I, I think Scott taught it. <laughs> and it, it's really helpful when it comes to just what does the Bible say about debt? Um, and, and that should inform our decisions when it comes to getting into debt um, and how we spend our money. I mean, last build session's approach to money was huge in just how do we approach money and how do we approach so many decisions we make every day relate to money. And so if we don't understand what the Bible says about what money is, um, then we're not going to make the right decisions. And so we have to fall under God's word on what it speaks to. Um, even the decision of um, what does it look like? It, like, I mean, I don't think this is something, but do you live with a girl before you get married? Like, I don't think anyone in this room is going to say, yeah, that's what the Bible says. We need to do that. But that's because we know that God's word says we should not do that. Like, um, we need to know where scripture speaks directly to that. Um, and scriptures, there's a lot of scripture. <laughs> there's a lot to know. Um, and we need to be students of the word so that we can know where God speaks directly to our decisions. Because there are prescriptive will of God answers to some of these questions. Um, and if God's word has spoken to an issue in his word, then there really is no decision. Just do what God said. Um, God's made some decisions easier than others. They're directly addressed in his revealed will. So in that case, we can find God's will. Just open up God's word and he'll speak to it. Um, but we have to be able to know what that is and what that isn't. Um, I had a really good friend, have a really good friend. He lived in England, so. Um, <laughs> but I have a really good friend. And um, when he finished grad school, he was trying to decide where to move um, or what to do. He had one job offer and, um, and it was to a city he didn't want to live in. And he applied to something like 70 jobs. And he's like, I don't want to move to Albuquerque. I'm like, no one does. Um, <laughs> and we talked about it. And he was trying to decide, do I either A, not work, or B, go somewhere I don't want to go? And scripture says, you don't work, you don't eat. There's an answer to that question. There was not a decision. He moved to Albuquerque, met a girl. She was British. Now he lives in England. <laughs> <laughs> But, but there wasn't a decision because God's word, like, it felt like a hard decision because he didn't want to go. He had one job offer, you don't work, you don't eat. Scripture told him the answer to that question. Um, so, um, How does the Bible speak indirectly to my decision? Um, things like don't steal are easy, um, but what are some indirect things? I think this is this is probably where the debt one comes actually more um, into that category. Um, let's talk a little bit about car buying. I've owned like a hundred cars in my life. I, I don't even want to count. I, I like to buy new cars. I've made some decisions that were really, really poor in buying cars. And I'm sure one of them was probably a good decision in buying a car. Um, 
when you think about buying a car, what does the scripture say? It doesn't say, Matt, don't buy this car, but you should buy this one. But it does say a borrower becomes the lender's slave. So if you want to take out a Ferrari or Tesla-sized loan when you can afford a Ford, um, God has commented on that decision. And he has told you that's a bad decision. Um, and, and what's motivating you to buy that car? Are you trying to buy that car because you want to impress the people around you? Um, then God says something very specific about that decision. And so sometimes it's digging into your motives on why you're trying to decide, why you're trying to buy something. What if um, you want a red car and your wife wants a white car? Scripture says, husbands, love your wife. Do nothing from selfishness. Sorry, guys, you're driving a white car. <laughs> um, um, scripture says something about that decision. Um, and so there is a lot that scripture says about decisions. Um, that's kind of a weird example because I drive a red Tesla. <laughs> well, I did pay cash by God's grace. Um, and my wife doesn't drive it. So, it's okay. um, so when you get through all of that, um, you can humbly follow your desire um, and decide. Once you know that you're striving for holiness, once you know that you're not going against what God's word says, once you know that... Um, other counselors outside of you are helping inform what your decision-making process is, then you can trust your desires. And you can do what you know is right. And decisions are honestly pretty easy. Um, if God's will, revealed will in Scripture, doesn't directly or indirectly rule out all of the options except one, and if practical considerations are essentially equal, then the decision is really left to your desire. You've labored to carefully scrutinize your desire, and with a desire to please God with the decision, you can make a choice. And you have the freedom in that. Um, your job has been to think through matters wisely and biblically. It is God's job to make sure his will is done. Make the decision enjoy, and enjoy watching God's will be revealed as you look back on that decision. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into the opportunity for the flesh, but through your love, serve one another. And just one final note. Because we've all made bad decisions, we've all not used this process. Um, and we get to trust God. Um, sometimes you do your best and things fall apart. Sometimes decisions go bad and we trust God's sovereignty. Um, God's will can never be defeated by our decisions. When a decision doesn't work out, it was God's will for us to fall on our face. Um, some of God's lessons can only be learned through failures. Um, that's, I've failed many times in my younger days, more so, and I remember those. I remember the car I bought 
vividly that put our financial situation in stress and the nights of trying to decide how we're going to make ends meet this month because I got too big of a payment. Um, and I was taught the hard way what debt really looks like. Um, you remember those decisions. And so sometimes God teaches you through that. But that doesn't mean we want to step into those lessons. I'd much rather sit across the table from someone who goes, I remember vividly when I took too big of a car payment. Don't do that. <laughs> like, um, so let me close in prayer, and that gives you guys about a half hour for our discussion groups. Lord God, thank you for revealing your will in Scripture. Most importantly, thank you for revealing a path to salvation. Lord, without that, we are nothing. Um, and we are so thankful for that. And I think sometimes we even take that for granted. Lord, the fact that, that you made it clear what we can do to be saved, and that is put our trust in you, um, that there is no way we can earn our way there, Lord, but that you um, sent your son to the cross to save us. God, thank you for that. Um, we are so blessed to know that, Lord. Um, and you didn't have to do that, but you did out of gracious love for us, and we thank you. Lord, thank you for this lesson and for an opportunity for us to open up God's word together and see what you talk to us about um, as it relates to our everyday practice of making decisions. Lord, help mold us in your likeness. Lord, give us a desire, a thirst, a longing for your word uh, so that we can be informed and we can lead our households well. Lord, I thank you again for these men uh, for persevering through early Saturday mornings only to hear from your word what you want us to be taught so that we can be changed by you, Lord. Um, use these men over the next year um, to bring great things about in your kingdom, Lord. In your name, amen.